I'm Austin. I'm Mike. We are the test drivers. And we put tech through its paces. But this Techtober, I think it's time for the tech to put us through its paces. Oh man, there's so much stuff. <laughs> I just want to sleep. I just want to get some sleep at some mm-hmm. point in the month of October. So like, I think something that's worth mentioning, like with the way that we write our show document, we basically have what we refer to as A-side topics and B-side topics. This mm-hmm. time we're going all the way to C-side. Like we've got, <laughs> we have got everything going on today. And we're still not talking about everything that's happened over the no. last few weeks. There's just no. tech everywhere. It's a good time of year. But it's a very tiring time of year. Well, it's like this year is special in that like, it's usually a busy time of year anyway, but now there's a lot of stuff that was delayed as well. So it's all yeah. being compressed. Um, I mean, everyone's seen this. Like, your f- Name your favorite tech YouTuber. They've got videos going up every day to two days at the moment with brand new pro- projects. So like, there's a lot going on. In the past couple of episodes, though, I've been uh, requesting you to give me information uh, about various PC components and what they mean. And there's another one because I saw that AMD had a big uh, press conference and a lot of stuff going on, which people also seem very excited about. So can you give me the Austin Evans lowdown and what AMD are up to? I most certainly can for the new Mike Hurley PC of Doom coming Mm. in... Hopefully very, very shortly. Okay, so here's the deal. Ryzen 5000 series. So they've Mm -hmm. completely skipped over 4000 series on the desktop. So essentially, this is using the Zen 3 core. So this is an evolution of what we have on current Ryzen processors on desktop, on laptop, as well as what kind of chips are inside of the PS5 and Series X, right? So there are a few things. So it's actually using the same 7 nanometer process. So all the gains here really are down to the fact that they've completely re-engineered the core. So there are a few things there. So they've kind of re- redesigned the way they do their like core complexes. So it's now eight cores as opposed to four together, blah, blah, blah. The most important thing is the 19% IPC improvement, right? So each individual core can process it roughly 19% faster, not even counting the clock speed, which is also higher. This has traditionally been one of the only places where Ryzen has been a little bit behind Intel, right? Not only were Intel running at like, you know, five gigahertz plus, but they also had very high individual IPC, which meant that each one of those cores for single threaded things, for games and stuff, generally had a small lead. But that is essentially gone. Yeah, because like this is one of the things that has always been interesting. Like if you've been following processors before they became multi-core, is that things like the clock speeds, that used to be all that mattered. Mm-hmm. But then as time went on, the clock speeds were less important because it was like clock speed per core, right? Yeah, because IPC is instructions per clock, right? So if right. you're running at you know, one gigahertz versus one gigahertz, well, how many instructions can you run inside that one gigahertz, right? Like there's wow. another level down compared to the spec, the, what the spec sheet would tell you. Right. We're popping a stack here, I think. Oh, boy. So with this, uh, not really a huge surprise. The prices of the Next Gen Ryzen have gone up by roughly about $50 across the board. Um, so we have the 5600X, so that's the 6-core. That, honestly, at $300 is probably going to be like the number one gaming CPU. Now, as with all of these, typically the MSRPs that AMD are charging, like, say, 299 they usually slide a little bit. But the thing is, this time around... There's really no advantage, at least on paper. We'll have to obviously wait and see until we get our hands on it. But 
AMD look like they've pretty much done the clean sweep, right? They're more powerful in a lot of games. They're certainly more powerful like they've been for several years in like multi-threaded applications. The power efficiency seems to be there. There's a lot going for Ryzen 5000 series. And then if you want to go up the chain, you can go all the way up to the 5950X, which is a 16-core, 32-thread. That is a ridiculous thing to say. And that is running all the way up at 4.9 gigahertz with that 19% IPC improvement. Now, it's a $750 CPU, but unless they are wildly lying to us, and they typically are pretty good about at least giving you a pretty good sense of what kind of performance you can expect out of these things, that Ryzen 9 5950X is going to be the new top dog gaming CPU, and, well, pretty much all around just GOAT. I mean, this thing looks ridiculous. And it's at this point, like I think it's pretty much a done deal that, that this is it, right? Like Intel can't, can't touch this. So they have, so in traditional fashion, uh, I think a day or two before the Ryzen uh, launch, they pre-announced the fact that they have 11th gen desktop CPUs with PCI 4.0 they are going to be coming next year. I believe it's Q2. But they haven't changed their, um, they've not, what are they on? Are they on 14 or 10 at the moment? I think they're on 14 nanometer process, right? It depends on what you're talking about. So okay. they've been on, they're on their, technically their third generation of 10, although really only two of those generations actually shipped on the laptop side. So 11th gen uh, laptop processors are, at least until they bring more old stuff out, but I don't think they are. That's all their latest 10th gen, or sorry, uh, 10 nanometer chips, right? So on the laptop side, they're pretty much transitioned. On the desktop side, they have not. A big reason for that is because the 10 nanometer process just simply isn't as well developed. So they're getting like, you know, five gigahertz plus clock speeds out of the 14 nanometer because they've spent years and years getting absolutely every little bit of performance out of those. And the thing is, while the new cores have more IPC, that's not necessarily sort of overwhelmed by the idea that you just can't run them as fast. So we will see. There's actually conflicting information on whether it will still be 14 nanometers or it will be 10. All right, so this makes me seem like a different kind of nerd right now, but I <laughs> I pay more attention to like the way that companies report earnings and stuff like that than I do a lot of product release stuff. So like right. I know that like a couple of months ago, Intel said on their uh, earnings call that they were at least a year away. So like this was July, at least a year away from ten ten nanometer on desktop, potentially longer. That would roughly line out, because if it was June of last year, they're announcing this for Q2. Oh, I don't know. right. Yeah, okay. Possibly. I mean, I think the safe money is probably on 14 nanometer again. If I had to take a guess right now, but I do think it's a little bit up in the air. They have not said anything about it yet. Because it is worth remembering that even if they've said this, like Intel, as you said, they, they have said they were going to 10 nanometer multiple times now and <laughs> not done it. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, that's I a, wouldn't. Yeah. If I was if I was making a decision about a processor right now, I would not be waiting on Intel. Absolutely not. I mean, look, best case scenario, six months from now, Intel has something which is competitive, right? That's a very <laughs> long time, right? That is a very long time. And honestly, it's a big if. Absolutely. There's a real chance that this thing could be barely as good, if not maybe even not quite matching it, right? Like we don't know. And the fact that AMD has sort of had this huge lead and Intel has kind of had to really stretch it and really kind of be like, hey, hey, we have stuff. Just just, just wait a little bit, but it's going to be great. Just next a uh, couple quarters from now, it's, it's going to be awesome. Doesn't fill me with tons of confidence. Yeah. And this is like assuming AMD does nothing for this period of time as well. Yeah, I mean, you think, okay, if we're halfway through next year, we could be halfway through to the next uh, generation of Ryzen processors, right? Mm -hmm. So 
If you're building or buying a desktop gaming PC in the foreseeable future, like you may or may not be planning to do, Mm -hmm. I think with the small grain of salt that I have not tested these yet, but again, Andy's usually pretty good about, they don't come up with ridiculous things. Like usually when they say, hey, it's this much more powerful and here are the benchmarks, I generally find that those are pretty much sort of lined up with the benchmarks that I and others run. Andy seems like the move. And if you're thinking about building a new game PC, specifically with any of those new RTX 3000 series cards, and of course they have like the RX 6000 stuff coming soon. Um, because AMD have their own graphics stuff coming as well, right? Which yes. they're saying is good. I mean, but, yeah. but from what I've picked up, it's like it might be great, but like <laughs> it's very unlikely they're going to be able to match what NVIDIA have done. Yeah, I mean, usually the way it goes is that NVIDIA will come out with something which is, you know, you know, the top of the class or whatever. And then AMD will be like, oh, well, ours is a little bit less power efficient and we're trying to crank as much as we can. And it barely matches the price. My, from what I'm hearing, the RX 6000 series is not going to be super high end. It's probably mm-hmm. going to be roughly around that kind of like 3070, maybe approaching 3080 level. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, competition's great and it's not too far away. But right now, I think the safe money is on if you really want to build a new gaming PC that's fairly high end, Go for Ryzen 5000. Go mm-hmm. for one of these RTX 3000 series cards if you can get it, right? Because the 3070 is right around the corner. But there's a lot of stuff. I've been keeping my eye on trying to get one of the uh, 3060 cards. 3060 is not out yet. It's oh, 3070. Sorry, I can never remember which one's out and which one isn't. <laughs> it was it's because it's weird to me that they didn't release the first one, right? Like the 3060, right? Like it was like yeah. no, we went with 80, then 90. And 70. And seven, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's very confusing. But uh, I've been trying to get one of the 3080 cards for a while. Mm. Uh, because Good as luck. I said to you, like I, I, I want the NVIDIA one because I think it's the most visually appealing that I've seen. Mm. But I feel like I'm probably going to have to give up. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, look, uh, these things are going to be in stock from time to time. Yeah. I will say just a, a little personal anecdote. I know that here at the local micro center, anytime that there's a new shipment of 3080s or something coming out, there's a line, right? Like it's wow. People really want these things. They're mm-hmm. not you're not going to find them in stock at any point, right? Like I feel like it's going to be probably at least another couple months before you can just walk into a store and buy one, and that's probably being a little optimistic. People still really want these cards. Because as I said before, like I can I can order right now like other brands, yeah. But I don't know anything about these cards, right? Because yeah. all of the stuff that I'm seeing, all of the videos that I've seen, all the articles I've seen, everyone's focusing on the Founders Edition card, mm-hmm. um, and then also the visuals of a lot of these are too much. <laughs> I mean, sure, sure. I mean, look, if you're planning on waiting a little bit, I mean, so the Ryzen stuff is going to be launching in early November. And of course, there's no necessarily guarantee that that's going to be any easier to find. Although I expect it won't be quite so bad. Yeah, I don't think I'm I'm building a new computer this year, but it's something that I think I'm going to do uh, early next year. I think by then, hopefully stock is starting to stabilize and you'll Mm -hmm. have a much better sense of where the prices settle, because I'm assuming a lot of this stuff is going to get a markup. Like, there's this whole thing about MSI maybe, maybe not using like a shell company to inflate prices and sell graphics oh cards. Like, there's a, been a bunch of a bunch of drama. But regardless, it's a very good time to be a gaming PC aficionado. Mm-hmm. Assuming you've got a lot of patience or you get really lucky, uh, there's good stuff. It's just not easy to get your hands on right now. 
because like I want to build I want to build a PC not just for gaming. I I also want to build it for streaming. Like mm-hmm. st- actually streaming would be like the first uh right like um purpose for the machine. And so mm-hmm. like you know if you build a good gaming machine you end up with a good good machine for streaming, right? Like it's these things go hand in hand. But but like I don't want to put that focus on yet cuz like I've still got two games consoles like matter of weeks away. Oh, yeah, yeah. PlayStation, Xbox, that's a thing too, isn't it? Yep. And so like we got all, I've still got all that to come. So like I'm I don't want to uh I don't want to start having to think about building a PC just yet, but it is something that I'll probably as I say tackle kind of early next year. Absolutely. I think it's great to sort of spend the next couple months focusing on, you know, like this PS5 stuff and the Xbox stuff, kind of really get your hands around that. And then January February rolls around, it'll be a little easier to get your hands on some of these Ryzen processors, the RTX graphics cards. It'll be, I think, a good time to build things when there's a little bit of calm in the world. Although it's, I mean, I guess I can't say 2021 will be any better, but hopefully it will. (laughs) As always, hope, my friend. (laughs) This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by MailRoute. Bad actors threaten your business with spam and viruses, and they're even more sophisticated in 2020. Email traffic has tripled as companies have increased the number of employees they have working from home on residential networks. And as admins look to mitigate associated risks to businesses, your biggest vulnerability is probably your email, and this is where MailRoute can help. When it comes to handling business email, there are a number of things that are incredibly important. Security speed, uptime, and maintaining a streamlined workflow. And MailRoute solves all of these problems. MailRoute's team was the first to build an email filtering service way back in 1997, and they have been focused exclusively on email security for 23 years. So if anybody knows how to do it, it is MailRoute. MailRoute is the only service to provide one-click sync with both Office 365 and G Suite for simple and safe migration. Their API-level integration ports your data from 365 directly into MailRoute, so there's no need to duplicate your workload to activate their protection. MailRoute also meets federal compliance standards, including NIST 800-171 for Department of Defense contractors. I assume that that is very useful if you know what that means. I guess, but it's a a very specific audience that that would. But anyway, you can know that it's going to be rock solid. Admins enjoy real-time log searches and real-time reporting in their custom dashboard. And your dashboard also includes granular controls to stop spam and phishing attempts, plus viruses, ransomware, and mail route. So try MailRoute today and get 10% off the lifetime of your account by going to MailRoute.net slash test drivers. You can even get a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. That is M-A-I-L-R-O-U-T-E dot net slash test drivers to start protecting your business today. MailRoute, making email better. Our thanks to MailRoute for their support of this show and Relay FM. So Mike, mm. there was a little bit of PlayStation news that happened to be timed exactly alongside the Xbox Series embargo. <laughs> I love how they do this. Sony, <laughs> Sony are finally, I think, trying to play uh, a little bit dirty. Uh, I've been waiting for this, and they're doing it because it just felt like you know Microsoft has had. I mean, I'm talking to the guy who knows better than anyone. I think Microsoft <laughs> has had a very aggressive but very well planned um, rollout of information about the xbox far superior 
uh, to how Sony has handled the the information rollout of the PlayStation. And mm-hmm. you know, there are many arguments that you could make. I think the main argument that many people make, including I would make, is that Microsoft needed to do this more than Sony did because Microsoft's um, kind of console strategy and the actual strategy of Xbox going forward is a little bit more complicated than Sony's. Um, I would say this time, good complicated, but still complicated, right? It's like, yeah. we have these two consoles that are different. Oh, and also, by the way, uh, we don't want you to just buy it. We want you to get it on a subscription. Here's what that's meant <laughs> to look like. You know, they've had a lot to go in that regard. Um, and then at the same time, they have, I think, to to, to good effect, have, have utilized um, tech influencers to show off the the stuff to, to their audiences. So Sony is it's kind of funny, really, because like, they have relied on on people like your fine self to do tech, to do like teardown videos and stuff, uh, and Sony just did their own, which is like yeah a very like weird flex, but still a flex, <laughs> like you know, or it's like nah, we'll just do it ourselves. Thanks very much, but they are doing it, which is cool because like it kind of is a, a a weird video, I think, for a company to do themselves, but I'm pleased that mm-hmm. they did it. Um, it is a vastly different machine inside. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So I think it's really interesting to look at the dichotomy between the PS5 and the Series X, right? So if you look at the Series X, it's a, obviously a much more sort of squared off. And it's I, I believe if you look at the volume, it's got to be smaller, right? Because the PS5 is so much taller, even though it's not quite so fat. Mm-hmm. So inside the Series X, there's essentially two motherboards, right? So it's been split and they're joined up by a mid plate, which is essentially just a piece of drilled out aluminum that they're both mounted to. And there's a vapor chamber, which is traditionally a little bit more of an expensive cooling method. They use it on the One X, but it's also used on like, for example, all like the high-end NVIDIA graphics cards and whatnot. And then all of this is being packaged on with a single large fan on the top, which sort of sucks air from the bottom to the top, similar to something like the Mac Pro of the trash can era. Mm-hmm. Now, in contrast to that, the PlayStation 5 is a much more traditional design, right? So the cooling solution and the overall footprint of the way everything is laid out, not wildly different than the PS4, not wildly different than the PS3. There's certainly nothing wrong with that, right? So essentially what they're doing is they're trading off the area, so the size of the console, for price, here comes the train, the PlayStation train. <laughs> oh, I didn't even hear that one coming. So with the PlayStation 5, it is just a physically larger console. So it's taking advantage of just that one motherboard, which is the way that, I mean, to be fair, literally every other game console in the entire history of the universe has pretty much been taking advantage of. Now, they are doing a couple of interesting things. So it is being cooled by liquid metal. That is something which is much less common. So if you've watched Linus Tech Tips, for example, you'll know that liquid metal is a much better thermal interface material. So as opposed to something like thermal paste, which is what you would put in between like a heat sink and like a a system on a chip or a processor or graphics or whatever, liquid metal does a better job of transferring the heat away from the hot chip and onto your heat sink and then through the heat pipes, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with liquid metal is in the first part of the name. It's liquid. So while, yes, it will work well if you, say, let that liquid metal leak out onto the motherboard, then you have very, very bad things happen because it's obviously all very conductive. Metal gets everywhere, short circuits. Traditionally, not something that has been used in a lot of consumer electronics, something that enthusiasts have been taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, this has never been used in... Very many. I know that there are a couple like random graphics cards in the 2000s that used it. But. Maybe the easy thing to say is it's 
has not been utilized in this purpose at such scale before. Absolutely. So it's not like they're just slapping it on and calling it a day. They have a little like foam border around. They talked a little bit about how they've done a lot of testing and they feel confident. I don't, I'm sure it'll be fine. I mean, you know, Red Ring of Death was a long time ago. Yellow Light of Death was a long time ago. I would be very surprised if they have uh, just decided to say, you know, screw it. We're just going to throw it in here and not worry about it. But it is something interesting, right? Because what they've done with the PlayStation 5 is, and we've talked a lot about this in our previous comparisons of their specs, they have a smaller chip that they're running harder, right? The Xbox Series X has a bigger GPU. It is a bigger physical chip. And because of that, they're running at a slower but more consistent clock speed to get a higher level of performance. Mm. Sony, on the other hand, are saving money by building a smaller chip, but they are cranking it at much more aggressive clock speeds, which is fine if you can keep those cool. And instead of using something like a very expensive vapor chamber, they're going essentially just for a larger heat sink and something like uh, liquid metal to be able to get a good level of performance out of it but you are sacrificing the size. So I'm sure it's saving them a few bucks, or more than a few bucks compared to the Xbox. But in return, as long as it fits and it's quiet, which there's no reason why it shouldn't be, all of the evidence we've seen so far seems to indicate that it is relatively quiet. It seems like it's a pretty smart smart move on their front. Do you think the liquid metal could end up being a problem? Do you think it could cause issues? I mean, if they do it right... I think it will be fine. My 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 prior here is that they will do it right. But there's a reason why this has not been a mainstream thing. Now, I will say a console is probably a good place for this. You're not exactly moving and shaking your console around a lot. But, I mean, that being said, it's still going through shipping. It's still over years. Maybe that foam can degrade with the heat cycles. And it's it's hard to say. I think it's one of those things where... There may be problems that crop up in the first year or first few years, or it might be completely fine. It is really hard to say, but if I had to take a guess, uh, those Sony engineers are pretty pretty clever. They probably have a fairly foolproof thing, but it is something that is maybe a potential concern for the future, whereas something like you know thermal paste and a vapor chamber on the Xbox, I would feel much more confident with just because that is a proven solution that has been shipped in many, many products, mm. including the One X, right? I mean, it's a, basically a larger version of that, but... Uh, I don't think they're wildly out of step here because, I mean, they do have to keep that thing cool, right? I mean, that is, they're running at a very aggressive clocks. And because yeah. of the architecture of the PlayStation 5, it's not a consistent clock speed, right? They are always trying to get the absolute maximum out of their power limits and their thermal limits. And to do that, you want to get every advantage that you can. And the difference between, you know, thermal metal and a normal sort of like, you know, thermal paste or whatever, it might only be a few degrees. But in a real game, that might mean the difference of, oh, I'm not, you know, throttling down in Last of Us 3 or whatever, whereas I might before because I have that little bit of extra headroom. So I think in this sort of game, every little bit can make a fairly large difference. They also showed off some of the UI, um, like the new home screen and some of the new uh, features that they've got for the user experience and user interface at a PlayStation. Um, you know, for me, I think, like, it looks modern, uh, but yeah. still very PlayStation uh, or still very games console, really, because the PlayStation and Xbox UIs, especially the home screen, seem very similar in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like that they're doing a lot of stuff in trying to... I think I would assume this is SSD-related stuff where letting you jump into certain parts of the game or certain parts of a game's interface right from the home screen, which is, is an interesting thing to do. Um, I also, I, personally, I kind of like the the hints mechanic that they've got. Yeah. Um, 
which I, I like the way that they pitched it of basically like, you know, if there's a certain thing you're trying to achieve in the game, the developers can allow for like hints to be shown. And this can either be text or video. And they said the benefit of this is you could get the assistance you need for the one thing that you want without seeing spoilers for the game by having to go through a walkthrough. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. The rest of it is like, for me, this isn't, uh, I, I've I've realized this video made me realize because uh, it was similar for the Xbox too. I, I think I kind of don't care about the user interfaces <laughs> of my sure, game console sure. that much. Like, because really, like, um, it's not like other devices where, for me, the user interface of the game's console, I want to do two things: provide me with a store experience, which is easy to navigate, and then let me press play on the game I want to play. Yeah, absolutely. I will say I'm. I like the look of it. I certainly mm. think if you look at it compared to what you get on the Xbox interface, there's certainly things I like about the Xbox interface, mm-hmm. but it is the same, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the Series X is slightly different, but when you look at the update, which is coming to the Xbox One consoles, I actually believe even like either it's this week or next week or something, it's essentially the same, right? Yeah. There are a few Series X specific like enhancements and like the the options and it can run it up to 120 FPS, but at least to my eye, and don't quote me on this, but I think it's still running at 1080p on the interface for the mm-hmm. Xbox. This may change at some point. I certainly hope it will change. But I would say that when you look at it compared to what you get on the PlayStation is not a particularly close contest. I think that they've taken some inspiration for the way they, they do things on the Xbox, specifically with the the home menu where it kind of pops in from the left and you kind of can scroll through everything. I like that little quick settings menu on the Xbox. And I'm glad that that's on the PS5. But I don't think anyone can look at these two interfaces side by side and say, oh, yeah, the Xbox one looks better. Because it just simply is more cluttered. It's harder. There's more menus to go through. I think PlayStation, they've got a good edge on this front. And I'm happy that we've finally seen this because, I mean, look, we're a couple weeks from launch right now, right? And it's been mm-hmm. a very long time with seeing very little of the PlayStation. So I'm happy they're finally showing stuff because, I mean... It seems a little unusual to be this close to launch and getting like these major new features like, oh, here's finally what the interface looks like, right? Like traditionally, we would have seen all this stuff back at E3. Man, I really need to get moving on my new TV. Oh, dude, it's funny you mentioned that. Literally 10 minutes after we were done with the podcast, I got a bunch of TVs across the hall that I'm going to be testing on the Series X with HDMI 2.1 and everything. That's actually a whole thing that we're going to dive into. I I want the 2.1. I need to check if the TV that I want is HDMI 2.1. I want the uh, 48 inch LG OLED. Yes, I believe uh, the 2020. Right, that I'm almost positive all of the OLEDs from LG this year, and I actually believe last year as well are HDMI 2.1 compliant. I will say that I've been using a 65 inch 2020 OLED for all of my testing, and that has worked flawlessly at 4K 120 with no issues on the Series X. Yeah, I just checked. HDMI 2.1 on that one because the thing is for at home like we tried one of the I think it was 55 inch LG OLED and it was too big for the environment oh. that the TV was in and there were mm-hmm. no sub 50 inch OLEDs um, and then this year LG came out with the 48 and I think I think that will work I think we currently have like a 42 inch TV yeah, that's a new thing for this year. Because, yeah, before they never made any OLED. They basically made 55, 65, and I believe 77. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, now the fact that they have a slightly smaller one, I think, is going to make a lot of sense. Because I don't think, unless, like, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it has all of the same features of the higher end. It's just a smaller yeah. physical screen, yeah. which is great. Because 
when I've been looking into this, and I, again, there'll be a whole video on it, so I don't, I haven't done all the the testing yet, but it's not easy to find HDMI 2.1 compliant uh, displays, and on top of that, it's not easy to make sure that they are actually rated for a proper 4K 120. There's a lot of TVs that take advantage of like motion smoothing, and on the flip side, there are a lot of TVs that are HDMI 2.0 that will do 120 FPS, but at 1080p, which is still better than nothing, but the I think there's going to be a lot of people who buy these consoles, especially looking at how many games that are running at higher frame rates, like 120, and support things like FreeSync and variable refresh rate and auto low latency and all this kind of stuff. I think it's going to be really confusing because if you take a look around, unless you know exactly what you're looking for, it is really hard to look at a TV and say, oh, yeah, this will be great. It is a very, very confusing space right now. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I have a 4K television at home but it's mm-hmm. one of the first 4k televisions right so it's not that great okay but it's a 4k hdi tv hdr tv but again super early on so like and it's it's not an oled i think it's like an lcd it's mm-hmm. nice it's a nice tv but it's it's like five years old right so it's it's kind of earlier on in that in that and uh i had a regular playstation 4 and when spider-man came out i was like all right i i know everyone's talking about how great this game looks that's when I'm going to get a PS4 Pro, right? And I actually have mm. the Spider-Man PS4 Pro because I still oh. figured I'd just get it all in a big package. So I had the red one with the big white Spider-Man logo on it. Such a cool colorway. It's, it looks great, right? And I have a red PlayStation controller. It's awesome. And I played the game, like play through it all, and I was like, this does look really nice. You know, this doesn't blow me away, but like it's really nice. It wasn't until I finished the game that I realized that I had my TV plugged into a HDMI cable like a hdmi input on my tv which did not do 4k hdr wait what i have three hdmi ports on my tv oh no two of them enable 4k hdr and then there's (laughs) another one that doesn't and i have my playstation plugged into the third one oh no was it 1080p the whole time i think so yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, it was. But my Nintendo Switch was plugged into one of the 4K ones, so I got that going oh, for me, I suppose. 4K, let's go. 4K Animal Crossing. <laughs> oh, it's brutal, man. So well, stupid. Hopefully, the OLED treats you better. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna play. Th- I'm gonna play through the Spider-Man game again, right, with the Miles Morales thing, because they've made yeah. a bunch of changes, and and I love that game enough that like I want to play through the whole thing again. So that's gonna be that's the game that I'm most looking forward to. Um, with the new generation is more Spider-Man and I figure I, I really enjoyed the, the PlayStation Spider-Man game so I'm going to play through the whole thing again this time in good true 4K HDR at a higher frame rate so that's going to be great yeah dude I'm like I'm actually in a kind of similar boat I missed out on a lot of PS4 games this generation mm. uh, I specifically waited on Last of Us uh, Part 2 I want to play that on PS5, even though I don't actually think it's optimized, or at least I, I don't believe so. But regardless, I want to play that when PS5 comes out. I'm excited for like Gran Turismo. Yeah, and I'm waiting for Cyberpunk, I think. I think I'm waiting. Yeah. I think I'm going to wait and play that on the either the PlayStation or the Xbox. Yeah, I mean, how could you not, right? I mean, that game looks like, I feel like I'm going to sink a lot of hours into it. I might as well wait a little bit and get that full experience. Wait, when when is the PlayStation coming out? What's the date? <sighs> the same week as the Xbox Series X and the iPhone. I don't know how. What? How could you forget something like that? You know, the worst week in wait. Are they all the coming out at the for, same time? They all come out within a few days, man. I think it's. Uh, oh hang on, I, I actually can give you the exact days. They're all coming out. I think within like four or five days of each other. Oh my god! 
Because isn't it like, I think the US gets it on November 12th? Yes. Okay. So PS5 is November 12th. Yeah. Because I have to wait until November 19th for the PlayStation, but I'll be getting mm-hmm. my Xbox, I guess, on November, whatever it is. Okay. Hang on. Wait. I'm actually, I'm going to look this up now because I want to see. So it is November 12th for the PS5, November 10th for Series X. I believe it's the 15th for the iPhone? Uh, 13th. Oh, 13th. Okay, cool. So 10th, 12th, oh and 13th, we get a brand new Xbox, brand new PlayStation, iPhone mini, iPhone max. So, you know, a very calm, quiet week with nothing going on in the tech space. Oh my God. No reason to listen to the podcast for any reason because we will clearly have nothing to say nothing that to week. to talk about. Yeah, and Cyberpunk comes out on November 19th, so. Oh, perfect. I don't even have to wait. Oh. Well. <laughs> oh my God, November. I, I, I'm. I'm feeling I'm feeling like a little uncomfortable right now just thinking about all of this stuff coming up. I felt like the last few weeks have been like super busy, mm. but thinking about all of those things launching within a few days of each other, I my chest is getting a little tight right now. I'm a little like, uh, how long am I going to have to make all these videos? Yeah, uh. I was genuinely like, oh, you know, just got to get through the rest of October. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> 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 I mean, these are excellent problems to have. Great problems I mean, <laughs> to have because it's stuff that we love. But it Absolutely. Is, there is just like this weird thing this year where the compression effect is making stuff worse, where like things would usually be a little bit more, a little bit more spread out than this. Yeah. Well, one of the things that has been square in the middle of Techtober has been the Surface Laptop Go. Okay. We spoke about it last time and you did, you seem pretty down on it. So I was, and this is going to be a little bit of a trend for the episode today, and that Austin was at least somewhat wrong. Uh-oh. Okay, so let me set the stage, right? So I think when we recorded that episode, the Surface Go had just been announced, but it's I didn't have my hands yeah. on it. I have a review unit now. It's actually sort of oddly become my daily driver, but not entirely because I love the Surface Laptop Go. So let me explain. So the, first of all, a lot of the stuff that we said last episode is absolutely applicable. I like the hardware. There's a lot of stuff that they've done right, but the SKUs are very, very bizarre. The pricing is a little bit weird. And the fact that, you know, it maxes out with like eight gigs of RAM is not ideal. There are some cuts like you don't have a fingerprint sensor, or sorry, you don't have a backlit screen and the fingerprint sensor is only on the higher end models. But all that being said, it actually is a very usable little laptop. There are a couple of minor things. We did a This Is episode on it. But generally speaking, it's actually become my daily because at the same time as that's come out, between YouTube Studio making some changes on the back end and something to do with Safari on iPadOS 14, I have now been basically not able to launch videos from the iPad anymore, which is a huge problem with huh. me trying to daily it. Yeah, so some of the things on the back end have just broken. And that's actually not even just an iPad thing. It also does not work very well. It's very, very laggy on Safari on the Mac. So I've had major issues trying to daily the iPad. So actually, I've been taking the Surface Laptop Go just to like launch videos and stuff. And when I start carrying, I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to use this for everything. So because it's so small and because it's so fresh, it's kind of become my daily. But it is a really nice piece of hardware, right? I think it's one of those things where if you can put the specs aside and if you can kind of Forget about the exact value proposition for a minute. It is actually a really nice little laptop. It's super portable. It feels premium. It does run a little warm, but I haven't really had any major issues. I'm like, oh, you know what? I can't wait to to ditch this thing, go back to the iPad. It's been completely serviceable. What about this package? 
makes it better than, say, the Surface Go? Well, the Surface Go has almost all the same trade-offs, so it's a little bit smaller. But the thing is, it's not as powerful. So, like, even with the upgraded Core M3 version, like, the highest-end Surface Go you can get, it's a little slow, right? Like, I mean, you can tell it's a little pokey. It's, it's fine, but it's not really, really fast. And I think that there's, like, a level of performance in just, like, normal day-to-day use that I can see a difference of, right? Because this has a Core i5 in it, mm-hmm. and it is a 10th-gen isolate Core i5, so it's a much more modern processor. It's quad-core, and it actually has, like, real graphics behind it. In the it. laptop version. In the laptop, yes, in the laptop Go. So even though on the Surface of it, there's a lot of things that are oh. very similar with, like, RAM and SSD and blah, 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 and the screen's uh-huh. actually technically lower resolution but the main thing for me is just that extra performance is something that, while it's not a deal breaker, it means like I can notice the Surface Laptop goes just a touch slow. Like there's like a, a little hesitation, you know, as I load web pages or move between things or whatever. That's just not really there in the Laptop Go. I, of course, always like to use an i7 or a Ryzen or, you know, the highest end thing. But, and this seems like it's a bit of a trend for a lot of the devices I've been using lately. There's a level of good enough in 2020 which is even for me who has access to a lot of things and I can, you know, A, B going right back and forth between a very high-end like desktop with, you know, Ryzen 9 or whatever and going down to a $550 Core i5 laptop. There's a level of good enough for a lot of the things that I do that sort of take away those specs from the equation, right? I don't really care. As long as it's good enough to do all of the normal, honestly, fairly light work that I usually do if I'm not doing something like editing, then the sort of equation for me is very different. It's not about like, oh, this laptop versus this because of the performance, because what it enables me to do. As soon as it's powerful enough and allows me to do that base level of work, then it's like, oh, you know what? This one's a little bit lighter. It's nice to carry around. I care about that more. Or, oh, you know what? I really like the way that this feels, or I like the way that the touchscreen responds, or I like the the screen aspect ratio. Like a lot of those things that are maybe secondary when there's these huge performance swings and huge sort of like differences between devices, kind of start to fade away and it becomes a much more personal preference kind of thing. This is what I think makes iPads so good to work from. It's all this stuff, right? Because, yeah. you know, like I've used Windows enough recently to just find, there are just little things that are just so frustrating to me that I don't experience even on my iPad. Like the responsiveness of a trackpad, mm-hmm. uh, like dragging and dropping stuff. It very frequently is just like, it just doesn't work very well for me on, on Windows. You know, like there are just these little like kind of polished things that I find to be just nowhere near as good as on a Mac or even especially on an iPad. You know, like for me these days, funnily enough, the very best trackpad experience is the iPad trackpad experience. I think it is far superior to anything else. Like just because yeah. it works like you uh, you would expect a trackpad to work that has all of these like additional visual and and uh, user experience features that that really feel reimagined. So I really love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lo- definitely a little bit of magic there, right? I mean, yep. if you look at the Mac or the Windows, the Windows, <laughs> the Windows, <laughs> hello, the you know, Microsoft. The Windows. <laughs> You mean, these are operating systems that have been around for a very long time, and their sort of mouse and cursor sort of experience is the same, right? Whereas you look at something like the iPad, which kind of redesigned things a little bit. I mean, having even like a little bit of that magnetic pull, the way that it kind of appears and disappears, like, I know it takes a touch of getting used to, but I'll agree with you. I mean, it is a very nice experience once you kind of understand sort of not to fight it and to kind of just like let it help Mm -hmm. you. You're like, oh, this is super smooth. This is really, really nice to use. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I would like to say that hopefully they will fix some of my YouTube studio issues because 
I can't daily a device that I can't launch videos on because that's something I do on a very regular basis. But um, yeah, who knows if maybe a, an ARM MacBook might be around the corner that might tempt me away. It's got to be any time now. I mean, they said end of the year. I'm looking at the calendar. Not a lot of days left. No, I think it's end of the year. Like I, I all right. So one month from today. Okay. Maybe a day and a month from today. So middle of November, I reckon we're getting a, a, another event. So Oof. I'm ready, man. I I'm very excited. I have. Oh my in, god, uh, Austin! The... Austin, <laughs> you know what week that is? No, 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 Mike. Do not, do not tell me. Do not tell me. Oh my do god! Not. I'm t- it, no. it is going to happen either. No. Nope. Xbox PlayStation week or the week after that. If they give me another event to cover the same week, I'm gonna just quit YouTube. It's. I'm telling you. It's either going to be the 10th or the 17th. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to deal with it. I'm afraid. Sorry. All right, you know, I was excited. I was excited about an ARM Mac. I'm like, you know what? I want to get one of these new iMacs and bring mm-hmm. it home, and that's going to mm-hmm. be like my office computer. Not anymore. But before we start talking about another Apple event, we have another one to cover, which has just happened, which we're going to get to in just a second. This episode is brought to you by Hover, one of Relay FM's longest-running sponsors, When you have that one big idea, where are you going to go? Every business starts with a domain name. So does every project. So does every idea. It is that first big leap. Hover has over 300 domain name extensions for you to choose from. So no matter what you want to build, there's a domain name waiting for you. They have excellent technical support as well. I'll answer any questions that you might have. Hover are dedicated to helping you get online, not upselling you, not making things difficult. They want you to have a great experience. This comes down to the way that they design the platform. Super easy to go and register a domain name in just a couple of seconds, a minute, and you're done and everything's forwarded to where you want it to be. Super easy to use. Uh, I love that you get free who is privacy on every uh, domain that supports it so bad guys don't get your info. And they also have tons of great sales over at Hover on popular top level domains. So they're trying to give you the best prices they can all the time. Maybe you've always wanted to try out live streaming. You could grab a .live domain and have it redirect to your streaming platform of choice, which Hover can handle super easily. Um, I've recently got Mike.live for this, and I, I think it's a great great option for domains.live. I think that's a really good one. So go and buy your domain and start using it today by going to hover.com slash test drivers, and you will get a 10% discount on all new purchases. That URL one more time is hover.com slash test drivers. Make a name for yourself with Hover. Our thanks to Hover for their support of this show and Relay FM. So, iPhone 12, it's here. iPhone 5G, I guess they should have just called it. <laughs> oh, no. No more 5G, please. We, I've had enough 5G. Everything has 5G now. I don't, I, it's okay. It's okay. They went heavy on the 5G, man. <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I was... Uh, the amount of times... The 5G on Verizon was mentioned at that mm-hmm. event. I was like, all right. Like, I get it. You, surely you had some deal. It's not like Verizon's just there because they felt like it. But, like, I felt like I was getting beaten over the head. Yep. With Verizon 5G. Oh, wow. I can't believe I can enable this. With Verizon 5G. Oh. I guess it's a oh. shame I don't live in America because I can't get Verizon. That means I can't get 5G, I suppose. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist anywhere in the land of freedom. 
you know, like the five G the five G story is a bit of a mess. Like, and and I don't think we're going to start really getting answers over it for over the like for the next week or so, because mm-hmm. you know, there's like there's certain models of the phone that work in different countries and different territories, oh, and yeah, um, I think millimeter wave is a U.S. thing only for now. Is is what Very I've come strange. to understand. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, but like, look, five G is going to be great. Uh, Eventually, I I don't think 2020 is the year that 5G is going to change our lives, but it is the year Apple should have gone 5G, and it's the year they have gone 5G. I think the surprise mm-hmm. on uh, for me and for everybody else is how heavily they lent on 5G um, as a feature for this phone. It, it it just was like a bit surprising, really, um, that they that they went so strong on something which is so new, and it's very un Apple like to do that. Can I hit you with a bit of a hot take? Yes. If you take 5G away from these new iPhones, is there really that much that's exciting about them? Uh, no more than there would be normally. Yeah, right? I mean, so we didn't get ProMotion, right? Didn't so get that. still 60 hertz displays. Big loss. Sure, there are improvements on the iPhone 12 and there's the new Mini, right? So that's nice. Do you get like the better screens and whatnot? Don't forget you there's a, a new design. That's yeah, a big yeah, you deal do get in a iPhone new land. Yeah, but I don't want to be uncharitable here, and I'm certainly not going to be a hater of this design whatsoever, but it's not really a, a new design. Right? I mean, it's, it looks a little familiar. Let me, okay, so the, it's new in the sense of like what Apple does, mm-hmm. but like for, for what Apple does, this is about as new as you'll get, right? Like, sure. If you think that this looks noticeably different from the iPhone X, and it took a mm-hmm. really long time for something to look different from the iPhone 6. Yeah. Right? No, but I just look at this and be like, okay, they essentially took the current-gen iPhones. They gave it a little bit of an iPhone 4, iPhone 5 sort of look. iPad, man. iPad, iPad Pro design. Uh, sure, sure. I think it... Okay, sure. I, all of it, I think, still stems back from like that iPhone 4 design, right? I think sure. you're going to put like an iPhone 12 mini next to an iPhone 4S, and you're going to be like, oh... These look very similar, right? I guess I just think that, like, what else are you really going to pitch here? I think that the camera, and I know we're going to talk about this in a minute. I think the camera discussion, specifically around the differences between the the different devices and how the 12 Pro Max and the 12 Pro have different sensors and stuff, like, I think a lot of that was kind of confusing, and none of that was very clear on, like, hey, this is a huge upgrade. Super confusing. I'm just just saying, like, if they don't have 5G – which is, at this point, I think we all know, although I don't think the general consumer knows quite so well, that 5G is not a revolutionary upgrade. I know that everyone wants you to think it is, and they want you to buy that new phone and upgrade to the new plan or whatever the case is. But 5G, for the vast majority of people anywhere around the world, is a minor upgrade. And the only real place you're going to get it is in a place like a stadium, where if you're, I don't know, watching a football game, you can watch 10 different angles at the same time, apparently, even though who exactly is doing that? All of that stuff is great, right? Like that's mm-hmm. you know, I guess it's interesting that it's a possibility and the possibilities of five G into the future will be a big deal, but it's not there in twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. So like to the thing is like I agree, like they should have had it and it is right that they should have it. It's an important feature for Apple to have in their phones now. Just the fact that they kind of used five G as the linchpin for the presentation just seemed weird to me. I mean, I think we're at a point where you as a phone manufacturer 
have to include 5G. I don't think carriers are going to put your phone in their store if it doesn't have 5G at this point, right? Sure, I don't sure. think this is even an option for anyone. I don't even think Apple could get away with not using 5G. Mm. There's nothing against it. And I like some of the things they talked about as far as the ability for the phone to drop from 5G down to 4G when mm-hmm. you don't need the speed. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'd like to see how smooth that is and how well it works if you ever see any kind of lag and stuff. I assume those Apple engineers probably know a thing or two about switching networks and not sort of being mm-hmm. slow about it. But uh, there certainly it's a nice thing. And I think that if we were sitting here in an alternate universe where Apple had passed on 5G for another year, that would be the only thing we would be talking about, right? I mean, that would be completely crazy if they had missed this. But also, I just don't think that it's as hyped up as they made it out to be. And I certainly don't think it's as big of an upgrade as most people expect. So what do you think of the new design, the new colors? Are you into them? Like, which, what are you leaning yeah. towards? So I will say, my pessimism aside, I actually was excited for this event, and I do like this design. Right. Yep. I still think that the iPhone 4 and the 4S are some of the most beautiful phones ever made. Right. I love those designs. I remember that white 4S, man. Mm, so good. So good. Even today. And the fact that they're coming back to a sort of more squared off design with the nice tapered corners. You've got metal glass. Very simple. Very clean looking. Big fan. I also really like the idea that we have so many sizes, right? So I, I always thought that the last couple of years of iPhones were a little awkward and that you had the smallest iPhone, which was the 11 Pro, the middle iPhone. Mm. Then you had the cheaper 10R or 11, which was slightly bigger. And then you had the Pro Max, which was the more expensive one. Yeah, like, it was all messed up. Yeah, It was a little weird, right? And that was one of the reasons why like, I used the 10R uh, when that came out. That was like my daily for a full year because I really liked the battery life, but I never liked that size. So when the 11 Pro came out in 2019, I jumped over to that just because it was the smallest phone and it didn't have terrible battery. But for me, I look at the iPhone 12 mini. That seems like that's the most exciting phone here, right? I don't care. I mean, obviously, I would like all the camera stuff. I disagree with you, but. Ooh, ooh, okay. Hit me, hit me. Why? What's wrong with the 12 mini? Uh, There's nothing wrong with it, but I wouldn't call it the most exciting. The most exciting is the 12 Pro Max for me. Okay, well, I think. We'll have to agree to disagree here, yeah. my fine sir. No, but like this, but this is the difference. Like, I, I think anyone that listens to this show can tell why you think that's the most exciting, and I think mine's the most exciting, right? Because sure. it's about our tastes, and because you have been talking for a long time about wanting a smaller phone, right? Like it's been it's one of the driving forces for you using the Z Flip, um, and it was you know one of the things that was keeping you away from a lot of the new flagships, uh, especially all the Samsung stuff. They were mm-hmm. like the new the other Samsung stuff, right? And the OnePlus stuff, they were just too big. And so, the, you know, the, a Mini is that. I mean, I'm intrigued to see, like, how battery life and stuff works out for you. I think uh. battery life on all of these phones <laughs> is a real question. And Apple has not yeah. been very forthcoming with the information. Like, it's all on their website. But then there are discrepancies in the way that some of the stuff's counted on the website. It's like, uh, and they didn't mention anything in the presentation. So that means it's either better, it's either, sorry, w- the same or worse, you know, would be my yeah. expectation. But especially the Mini, the Mini is small, so it, it will have a worse battery life than some of the other for phones on the lineup, of course, because it is smaller, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, and now every phone has OLED. Yeah, so uh, there's, there's a lot to break down here, and I know mm-hmm. you've gone over on a lot of your other shows, but mm-hmm. I think 
There are a couple of concerns, so I would 100% agree with the battery life. I think best case scenario, it's about the same as last year, which to be clear, I think all of the iPhone 11, 11 Pro, 11 Pro Max, all have very good, completely acceptable battery life, right? I think that was one of the major upgrades last year for me was just the fact that you could actually use the phone for a full day. Unlike, yep. I know that the 10s was awful for me. I remember the big... Mm -hmm. Easily killing that inside of a day, which was not something that I was accustomed to on an iPhone, right? So if the battery life is similar, maybe a slight regression specifically on the mini, I think that's okay, but that is a big question mark. The performance is also a thing where they did not in their characteristically sort of swaggering way be like, it's a hundred times better and blah, blah, blah. Like they were very low key about the improvements in the A14. They focused much more stuff on things that were a little bit more esoteric of like the, the neural engine and the ISP processing, which is good, and there are definitely sort of use cases for that. But what they didn't come out and say is, this is 50% better than last generation. We have five nanometer process, blah, blah, blah. They were like, oh, it's faster than other phones, guys. It's, it's better. It's looking like we're probably going to see about 20% um, year-over-year improvements. Uh, but again, which is not nothing. I think the thing to remember with the A14 chip is it is vastly overpowered for what it is serving for most users. Sure. Um, and yeah. so, like, you know, I think Apple, I wouldn't be surprised if they were kind of aware of this and the places that they are putting their focus on, like the neural engine and stuff, maybe will provide a, more of a difference for the things that they're trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like that the A14 is enabling some pretty banana stuff when it comes to photography and video. Yes. So, you know, like that, I think they're put in with the phones, they're put in the focus where they need it to be. And I don't know if we need to keep seeing 80 to 90 to 100% year over year improvements in CPU and GPU on the phone. Um, I don't know if that's a thing that we need to continue seeing on the rate that Apple have been delivering it, um, mm -hmm. especially when it says, like, like, you know, they are punching above everybody else and everyone else is doing fine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit. I mean, you look at something like the Pixel 5, right? Yeah. That's not even an Android flagship, right? Like that yeah. is, or at least on the, the spec side, right? I mean, that's running a 765G, a upper mid-range sort of chipset. And even that is fine, right? So you go two full levels up, three full levels up, really, to get to something like the A14. Yeah, I'll say like... I had the opportunity to talk to uh, Tim Millay, who was the the guy at Apple who introduced the A14 during the iPad Air presentation. Um, so I got to interview him for another show that I do uh, called Upgrade. And in talking to him, it really seems like they are focused on two things when it comes to the A14, which is the five nanometer process. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's obviously a big step for them and enables a lot of different things, right? And and enables for things to move quickly where they want it. But also it is the the neuro, neural engine stuff. They really yeah. think that that's the place where they can get some big gains. And that is where it seems like from an architectural perspective, Apple has actually put a lot of focus in. And I would expect to see, like if the cameras are really amazing, like it looks like they could be in certain instances, uh, we can probably chalk that up to what they've been doing on the A14. Yeah, so let's actually talk a little about those cameras, right? Because yep. I think that, look, iPhone 11, I think it's, in my opinion, is the best overall camera at the moment, right? Yes. The Pixel comes close sometimes. A lot of Samsung devices come close. But like for an overall package, when you look at the stills, when you look at the video, the iPhone is the current king as of right now yep. before the 12 comes out, right? So there's no doubt in my mind that these are going to be an improvement. But what I'm a little less happy about 
is the confusing differences between the lineup and specifically how hard it was to actually understand. Like I, yeah. I remember right after the event, I was talking with a bunch of people who are like watching the event intently, who are very technically yep. minded, who are like, wait, which sensor has what? Wait, what? I have really been struggling to get my head around it, but I think I've got kind of the basics for you now, right? So we can talk okay. through some of that. All right, hit me. So every phone is getting a better wide angle, quote, regular lens, right? Okay. So it's seven seven element lens now, which they seem to be really happy about. But again, these are some of these things that they say. It's like, I don't really know what that translates to. <laughs> um, and it has a 1.6 aperture now, so the aperture is better. So that sensor has gotten improvements for every phone in some respect, right? So the 12, the 12 mini and the 12 pro are all using this same 1.6 aperture wide angle lens. Okay. For all of those phones as well, the uh, ultra wide and the telephoto is the same as it's been previously. So the 12 mini and the 12 just have the two cameras. They have the wide and the ultra wide. Ultra wide is the same. Ultra wide is unchanged. Yes. And the main sensor, I've heard conflicting things. The main sensor is the same. It's just the lens that's different, right? Or do we not know that yet? I don't know the answer to that. But but that system, the the wide angle system has seen changes. Um, Got it. Right. So like, you know, they are talking about what they've changed. I don't know if they've changed anything to the sensor of those as well. Right. I think the answer is no to that. But it is a, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into making a camera. They have made improvements to the wide angle, right, in some way. Mm -hmm. And, And so the 12 Pro also has these cameras and has the ultra wide, but there isn't any changes in, uh, the, there's no changes there in the, in the, actual hardware but the functionality has changed in all of those cameras in different settings so ultra wide and the true depth camera so the forward the front facing camera Mm -hmm. they get deep fusion now and night mode oh okay okay that's that's a especially for the front facing camera i think it's something that could be really helpful yeah, so they're, they're like really showing off like night mode selfies and stuff. So I think that's really cool. So, that you know, even though the the um, the camera hardware is remaining, so this is what mm-hmm. I think when it comes to the A14, this is the kind of stuff that we're seeing the A14 enabling in the cameras. So the cameras right. are getting better, but even though the hardware isn't changing, which is, funnily enough, kind of like what Google does. Um, so, and then also we've got smart HDR three. So that is mm-hmm. continuing to make improvements in the HDR, which the HDR, the smart HDR got off to a rocky start for some HDR two on the previous phones is absolutely unbelievable. Right. So like, if you are talking about, as you were like, what makes Apple the King at the moment, it's a lot of it is in what the HDR is doing. Like that's a lot of the stuff that people like. You know, like you can take a picture of someone with the sun behind them and it looks good. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and, and that stuff isn't wasn't necessarily possible before. The other thing that's going on that all of the cameras get is HDR video recording. And yes. what they're really pushing is Dolby Vision HDR. That's a really interesting improvement because I think you look at HDR. So HDR, specifically HDR10, because there's so many different HDR formats, but HDR10 is not something brand new, right? I mean, there have been devices on the market that can record an HDR video. 
but it's not particularly great. And dealing with any kind of HDR content is a bit of a mess, right? When it comes to trying to edit, trying to share different displays, have different support, like it's a mess, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at something like Dolby Vision, Dolby Vision is taking, at least the way I understand it, the iPhones will now shoot 10-bit video, right? So almost all video is shot at 8-bit, but 10-bit is a huge improvement on the amount of colors, right? So it's, I don't know the, the math on that, but it's it's a lot more colors, which means that you get a lot more detail to work with. You get a lot more dynamic range. You get a lot more specifically like accurate color. So when it comes time to like grade that color, you have a lot more work to work with as opposed to having the image start to fall apart with like banding and artifacting and compression issues. But the other thing is because it is Dolby Vision, they have a lot of that metadata built in. So essentially the fr- each frame can be individually sort of processed to get the most out of it. And that's all being done in real time on the camera, which is very exciting. I'm curious to see how it really works in real life. And specifically, I'm really curious to see what happens when you pull those files off the phone. Like, are you able to just share them? And is it like compress it down to SDR? Can I take these... Dolby Vision HDR clips from an iPhone and drop into like Final Cut and have that full dynamic range and you know run it through a full color pass. I'm really curious about it because this is a major step forward. The iPhones have always had excellent video. Yeah. And this could be another major leap on top of it if it's implemented in a way that you can actually take advantage of. I mean, considering it's Apple, my answer would be yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Say> right. <laughs> like especially if you're using Final Cut, like I am confident that they have made that work. Right. That you mm. will be able to take HDR video shot on an iPhone and edit in Final Cut as as a HDR video, right? Like I'm very confident of that knowing nothing, right? Yeah, yeah. So this Dolby Vision HDR can be shot at 30 frames per second on the 12 and 12 mini and 60 Mm -hmm. frames per second on the 12 Pro and 12 Pro Max. I assume, unless they're just artificially limiting these things due to segmentation, that's a RAM thing? I have heard it is a RAM thing, yes. Okay, okay. Because it I, at first, the way that they had done it on the presentation, it didn't seem like the 12 and the 12 Mini got uh, Dolby Vision at all. And I think it was a little bit after that they had like put out the spec. They at least it'll do it at 30, which realistically, I shoot all of my videos at 24. So if I can do it at 24 on the Mini, sign me up, I'm totally down. Dolby Vision is is up, what they're saying is up to 30, but I don't know if they're, I'm I assuming you can do it at 24 because they have 4K video recording at 24 frames per second, even on the 12 mini. And it yeah. says on their page, HDR video recording is up to 30. So you'd assume that Perfect. also means 24, right? You would be the natural yeah. assumption there because what else could it be? Right? Like, <laughs> oh, we're doing it at 27 just for fun. Um, now the, there is also a new optical image stabilization uh, system for all of the phones as well. Um, so all of the phones have got an improved optical image stabilization. Okay. But now we are, now I want to talk about the 12 Pro Max and why I think this is a uh, big phone, best phone. So, okay. Also, actually, what I should mention is that the Pro and the Pro Max have LiDAR, and the LiDAR is actually being used in the camera for some interesting stuff. Now, on the iPad Pro, none of these features have been enabled up until now. I don't know if they will change that, but nothing had been... It's like the LiDAR was basically just for AR, right? Mm -hmm. But LiDAR is being used on the 12 Pro and 12 Pro Max for autofocus in low-light conditions to help speed that up and also to allow for night mode portrait photos. 
That is very cool, right? That's gonna, so I'm, that the, I think that's going to be a killer feature, night mode portraits, because that is combining a lot of interesting pieces of technology into one thing. So like the hope is LiDAR will be able to improve portrait anyway, but night mode portraits could be very good looking in the right circumstances. Absolutely. So those are that that is a legitimate advantage because if you look at the 12 mini and the 12 mm-hmm. the main difference really going up to the standard pro is the fact that you get a telephoto lens yep. right so that you get one more extra option you get the ability to record Dolby Vision at 60 which mm-hmm. is nice although probably not <laughs> something that you're going to want to spend a couple hundred uh, more dollars for but you get that lidar for the better autofocus in the night mode which I actually do think depending on how it works could be a pretty major upgrade yeah so, like, the, the 12 Pro and the 12 Pro Max have the, uh, well, again, we'll get to the 12 Pro Max a little bit more, but, like, <laughs> it has the the potential to be very, very good for indoor and, and nighttime photography. Yeah, yeah. So, the 12 Pro Max goes a little bit further. It has sensor shift, image stabilization on the wide lens, the regular lens, now, I'm sure you can talk to this better from like what this means yeah. typically, but it's image stabilization. You see this in turnout videos, right? You can, and you know, you watch uh, Zach from Jerry, everything do this. Like you can poke the lens and the lens moves because the lens yes. itself is stabilized. And that's what optical yep. image stabilization is. But also the, 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 all of the processing of the images happens on the sensor, right? Like that's where the information is being moved to. It's where the photo is quote unquote developing, right? I guess is maybe the, the analog way of trying to <laughs> make somehow make this make I, sense outside of a digital mean. What's this film you speak of, old I man? Know. I, I, I'm trying my best. It's, it, I'm trying my best <laughs> to try and explain it in a way that makes sense in my brain. But anyway, they're also stabilizing the sensor itself. Right. So the way I understand it, it is similar to IBIS. So the sort of sensor technology that you would find in, say, like a lot of high-end Sony like cameras, like something like the A7S III. So basically, I think you did a great job of, of kind of breaking it down because there's those two ways of doing it, right? So there's always shake in an image, right? So as your, you know, your hands are literally not perfectly still. So typically, the lens will move around. So it will take advantage of the gyroscopes and everything. And essentially, the lens will have a little bit of play to move up, down, left, right, whatever the case is to counteract that motion. It's not perfect, but it will do something And specifically when it comes to video mode, usually there's a little bit of a crop so that there's actual digital stabilization going on as well. Part of the reason why the iPhone, the current video looks so smooth and so good right out of the box. Now, taking that one step farther, instead of just moving that lens, you're moving the sensor. Now, there are many reasons why, and I'm nowhere near as smart enough to understand exactly how that works, but essentially the sensor is doing a lot of the work of the lens, right? So as that sensor moves, you have a higher degree of freedom as far as how much you can sort of stabilize the image and you still have all the advantages of keeping it super smooth, not only for video, but also the idea is when you have a stabilized lens and or sensor for stills, it means you can do longer exposures without having to worry about it, right? So if you're taking a night mode, there's going to be less blur and stuff because the lens and or sensor are kind of trying to fight any kind of motion, as small as it might be, from your hands. So a night mode portrait on this phone could be next level. Yeah. Right. So, but also what's as well as this new um technology on the on the main lens, the wide lens. That wide lens also has gotten 47% larger than what is in the 12 Pro. 
So it's a much bigger sensor, which Apple is quoting to do to give what they're calling 87% better low light performance. <laughs> Not really yeah, sure how some... you get to those two things, but like I will believe it. I don't mm. know. I don't know what what makes a photo eighty seven percent better, but that's what they're saying. More light, I guess. More light through the lens, maybe some yeah. stabilization and a bigger sensor. I yep. guess if you add that up, I mean, it's a forty seven percent larger sensor. So mm-hmm. I think that by itself is a big deal because huge again. Yeah, this year we've seen a lot of large sensors, right? I mean, you look at something like the S20 Ultra. That thing is massive, right? It's even bigger than what you get on the 12 Pro Max. A lot of phones have sort of moved up a tier in the size of their sensor, which means that things like portrait mode is actually not always necessary, right? So if you take a nighttime portrait on, say, the S20 Ultra, you actually don't even need to turn into portrait mode because there's actually a little bit of depth of field. You kind of get a little bit of a soft background just naturally because the lens and sensor are so massive, right? So the idea that the 12 Pro Max is getting that bigger sensor is excellent. That being said, okay, here's something that I don't understand at all. Why is it only on the 12 Pro Max? Because the camera bump looks the same as the 12 Pro. And as far as I know, it's not any thicker. So why didn't they just keep it simple and put it on the 12 Pro? But is the sensor in the camera bump? No, so basically the camera bump is much more so for the lens than the sensor. So basically the sensor is pretty much always as far back as possible. Right, 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 yeah. So usually what the problem is is why when you have a larger sensor, you have a big camera bump isn't because of the sensor. It's because that sensor is bigger. You need a bigger lens to cover it. And because of that, if you want to go for a traditional focal length, right, you need to have some Z height. Well, I mean, I can think of a few reasons, right? So like one they might not need to have as much behind where the camera unit goes in that phone because you could potentially move those elements to somewhere else, right? Because all these phones are being stacked up. Uh, it might be a more expensive part, so they put in the most expensive phone. And they also (laughs) may not have as many of them, so can't put them in every phone, right? Like That's totally reasonable. Like All of this stuff might be a yield issue. I'm sure a lot of these phones are getting tossed straight in the garbage. Like, oh, doesn't quite pass the mm-hmm. the optical stim, uh, sensor test. Throw it in the recycle bin. Look, I, I'm happy that these are improvements, and I will totally say that you're going to have the better camera across the board, right? I mean, you're going to have a larger sensor than my Mini. You're going to have a better stabilized lens and sensor than my Mini. Oh, and don't forget, there's a better telephoto lens with a 2.5 zoom and 65. It's a 65 millimeter lens. So that's nice. Yeah, I know we actually we've talked a lot about that because a lot of other Android phones this year have gone to like, you know, three times, four times, five times zoom. That's fine. But that's almost less usable than having something which is, you know, a two, 2.5 times zoom. It's much better for like taking actual portraits. Yeah. Yeah. That that was an interesting thing, right? Where it's like I wanted a little bit more. I wanted like three. You know, that was kind of what I thought was the sweet spot. And I know that when we were looking previously at like when these phones are going to five, I think the jump is too much. Yeah. And so 2.5, I'm interested to see what that ends up looking like. I I bet it's going to be very nice. It's not a huge difference, but I do think that's nicer to have a little bit more zoom on it without going crazy town. That's probably a nice sort of middle ground. I am very excited for the Pro Max. Uh, I'm super into the gold color. It looks amazing. I think the design looks great. It does look good. Um, And I am very excited about these cameras. Look, man, I'm happy for you. I know Ken is in the exact same boat. He's 1,000% going to shoot all of our thumbnails on the 12 Pro Max, Mm -hmm. and we're going to shoot tons of video on it. I am not going to even consider a phone that big. I, right now, am 
so the Pro comes out first. So the standard Vanilla Pro, the smaller one, that's coming out sooner. So I will spend some time with that. There's a small chance that I might end up on that for some reason, maybe to do with battery life. But my strong assumption at the moment is when the 12 mini hits my hand, hits my tiny little palm, I'm going to be wholeheartedly on board. I think as long as the battery life is not terrible and the screen size isn't so small that it's really irritating, that is going to be my next iPhone daily driver. It's certainly not going to replace a Z Flip or any other Android phone that may or may not be in my pocket right now. Mm. But the 12 mini, I do think, has my name all over it. The cuts there, like going into it, my main concerns were I wanted to go with the mini, but not if it cut 5G which it didn't. It's mm-hmm. the exact same millimeter wave and everything across all of the iPhones, assuming you live in the land of freedom. And you have the same sort of camera experience. I would say it's close, maybe a little bit of a flex there. And you're not losing ProMotion, which is fine because they all miss ProMotion. So I'm not missing anything going to the mini. This episode is brought to you by SyncUp, a OneDrive podcast. Everybody loves finding new podcasts. It's a great thing. You find that new show, you go back and listen to your, the back catalog, get caught up, and then you have a new show in your rotation. It's one of my favorite things to come across. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, SyncUp takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive so you can learn about how to connect files, share your documents, and work from anywhere, and you'll get to hear about the design and development side of things too. Every episode covers a dedicated topic, guest interviews, news and announcements, and a special topic outside of the technology norm. Keeps things a bit different. It keeps things a bit interesting. Uh, so on a recent episode um, that, I, that I was listening to, uh, they were talking all about Microsoft Ignite because it's in full swing right now. So getting everything that's going on with the OneDrive team. And they had a guest on the show, uh, Ryan Hodge as well, who was not only helping recap some of the features that were going on in OneDrive, but they were also talking about our favorite, the Surface Duo as well. So you can go and check that out for more information about one of our most, I think, exciting devices we've seen uh, over the last few months. They talk about very frequently on the show empowering Mac users, changing management and product adoption, customer success, file sharing, personal vaults, so much more. Go and check it out right now. Just search for SyncUp, S-Y-N-C-U-P, wherever you get your podcast. So you can just click the link in the show notes. Our thanks to SyncUp and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of FM. So you just made reference to another Android phone. Hmm. Oh, did I? Now, are we talking about the brand new OnePlus 8T? Well, there were actually a couple of new phones oh, that have been out oh. and the whirlwind that is Techtober. But yes, the OnePlus 8T is here. I've actually, this one I've actually had for a while. So they gave it well ahead of embargo. So I've actually been using the 8T for, I think, actually the last two episodes now. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot that is very interesting about this phone. And I think not even to bury the lead here, I think that Marquez actually probably put it best. It's a weird middle child, right? So unlike previously, the there's no 8T Pro, right? The 8 Pro that came out earlier this year is still the high-end OnePlus flagship. The 8T is basically just trying to find some middle ground between it and the OnePlus Nord, which is much less expensive and is probably a better choice for most people if you can actually buy it. Uh, okay, okay. So let me go through it in some detail because there's, there's a lot here. First of all, the price is weird. So here in the United States, there's only one version of the OnePlus 8T I can buy. It is $750, but it is the higher-end model with the 12 gigs of storage, of 12 gigs of RAM, and I believe it's 256 gigs of storage, okay? 
Yeah, because you can get it for five fifty here. Mm-hmm. Yep, with a much more reasonable. I think it's eight gigs and one twenty eight gigs of storage. I believe. Okay, let me check that. I will be able to tell you. Um, five forty nine, eight gigs, one twenty eight gigabyte storage. See, if they were able to sell that phone in the U.S. at say six fifty, I think the OnePlus Eight T would be a very different value proposition. As of right now, it is squarely in the middle of stuff like the iPhone 12 and the 12 mini, the Pixel. You're looking at the Galaxy S20 Fan Edition. And there are some things that are, it makes it a little bit of a complicated trade-off. Okay, so there are a few things I absolutely love about the OnePlus 8T. Okay. 65 watts. 65-watt yeah, warp charging I don't know is about a game this, changer. Austin. Um, nope, it makes wrong. me nervous, this one. You know how I feel about weird charging technology. <laughs> and like, this is, they're taking two batteries and charging them both at the same time. My friend, this sounds like Explosion Central, this phone. <laughs> Look, I'm sure the math and the science and all the big eggheads at OnePlus HQ have got it figured out. All I care about, Mike, Mm. Is that if my phone's at 10%, I plug it in, go walk downstairs, come back up 10 minutes later, and suddenly I have 40, 45, maybe 50% battery. It is crazy town how fast this thing charges. Like, no joke, using the OnePlus 8T, like, look, other OnePlus phones and other phones have charged quickly, right? right? Nothing has come close that I've ever tried to the level of speed that this delivers, right? I don't even charge it overnight. Why would you charge it overnight? Like, I could legitimately charge it for maybe 20 25 minutes, and I am absolutely good enough to make it through a full day, right? No question, right? Yeah, I will say, like, whilst I, look, for me, like, this seems like amazing technology. Uh, I would feel more comfortable with it maybe in the second or third phone I see it in. Um, (laughs) But, like, as an idea, it's a genius idea because, sure, like, the more batteries you have, you can charge them faster, right? Like, we all know this, right? Like, this battery technology, you can get quick up to a certain point and then it charges more slowly. And this is like for performance, it is for to reduce overheating and also for battery health, right? But if you have multiple batteries, well, they'll both charge fast up to that level. And if you have two of them, well, that's half the battery. It's very, it's a very clever system. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Warp charging, phenomenal. Something Mm -hmm. else that's phenomenal is the 120 hertz display. Mm -hmm. So, I will give a small caveat. It's not quite as nice as, say, the S20 line or the OnePlus 8 Pro. It is, thankfully, a flat display. It's not curved, which I definitely prefer. You can look at it. There's a little bit of, like, rainbowing off-axis. It's not maybe quite as high quality as some of those other panels. That being said, though, still looks very good for 99% of the time you're using it. 120 is incredibly smooth. Does the 8 Pro have a better panel? I believe so. But the things that you're seeing in the in the 8T, yes. you have not seen in the 8 Pro. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I do think the 8 Pro is a slightly newer generation. That being said, though, it is still a good panel. I, unless you have them side by side, you're not going to notice the difference. I don't think it's something that you should consider when you're purchasing it. It's a great display. It is large in traditional OnePlus fashion. So it's, I believe, it's something like a six and a half inch display or something. So it's, it's, a, it's a big boy, right? But the screen looks great. 1080p is totally fine at this size. 120 hertz is super smooth. And of course, it is running Oxygen OS. So Mike, I know we've talked a lot about the OnePlus customizations and the custom version of Android that they build. They've actually done something a little different this year. They've actually done a lot more customization 
of the operating system between not only changing like stuff like the main fonts, right, which are very different, I would say, and it's sort of it's sort of very pervasive all around the actual operating system, but things like the design work and whatnot. Look, I know that they've certainly taken a lot more inspiration from something like One UI, and of course, this is running Android 11, right? So there's some of that built in. But I'm just gonna say, I think Oxygen OS might be the best looking operating system period right hmm. now. I love the design. I think it's better than stock Android. It's a bold move, though, from them because I think a lot of, of OnePlus faithful like that because, like, like Oxygen OS because it's basically stock. It's like the, all the changes are much more cosmetic. I mean, they always do a lot of work to like speed things up like the animations and it works well with the 120 hertz display. Super fast, super smooth. Performance is excellent. But on top of that, just, I don't know, just something about the clean, the cleanliness. I, it's just... It looks really nice to me. It's a breath of fresh air in a way that doesn't feel kludgy and ugly like a lot of other phones kind of try to, like, they customize it, but they change it for the sake of changing it or trying to match their brand ethos or whatever. Whereas with the OnePlus, you get that speed and the performance, and you get what I personally think is a really, really nice experience. That being said, though, this is not really a OnePlus 8T feature because it's Oxygen OS. You should see Mm -hmm. the exact same kind of looking software and everything on a lot of the other devices. The other thing, of course, is that performance, which it is powered by a Snapdragon 865. Hmm. It does have 5G. It doesn't have millimeter wave, which actually is a point I'll get to in a, in a minute, something that the Pixel does have a millimeter wave at this price point. But I think that's a very reasonable trade-off, especially considering that adding millimeter wave to a phone is not cheap. And I don't want to pay for a feature that, let's just put it very frankly, I'm not going to use. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some things that the OnePlus 8T is missing. It does not have wireless charging, which I would normally care about this. It is a nice feature to have, but that warp charge is so fast. I'm like, whatever. Who, who wants to sit around and wait for your phone to charge for two hours when you can pl- charge it for 15 minutes? Yo, we didn't talk about MagSafe. Oh, oh, Mike, wait, hold on. Wait, MagSafe doesn't reverse wireless charge, does it? Does it or no? No, it doesn't. Oh. But I'm just saying, like, let's, let's rewind just a minute. Just a minute. Short aside on MagSafe. Yep, looks yep. cool, right? It is very cool. I like the magnets. I feel like a lot of the accessories are going to be cool. I like the idea that it's faster charging. It's like 15 watts on the iPhone yeah, now 15. as opposed to, I think, 7.5 before mm-hmm. with a standard Qi. Um, I'm still kind of... Uh, wait, right, for real though, wait, we know that it will not reverse wireless charging anyway. Um, I mean, they didn't say anything about it. I totally forgot about it until this moment where I realized that it doesn't have it. They haven't said it. Uh, but I mm. I don't know if we can rule it out yet. That would be great, but okay, MagSafe is cool. Like, well, I mean, I don't think it's gonna happen. I think it exists now, but I could imagine like a new set of AirPods coming out, and they're like, oh, if you attach this to MagSafe, it will charge. Like, I I don't know the answer to that question, right? Okay. Regardless, MagSafe is very cool, and it's something that you certainly will not find in any way on the OnePlus 8T. Um, look, the other thing, and actually I think probably the biggest issue with this phone are the cameras. They're fine, but what they're doing is the same thing they've been doing earlier in the year. They're adding a lot of gimmicks. So you look at the back, it looks nice, right? So they've moved the camera, like the little like camera bump over to the side. It's very 2020 looking and you see all these lenses and stuff, but look, there's a bunch of stuff that's pretty much useless. There are two flashes. I don't know why. Don't think that makes a difference, but it looks more symmetrical. There's a monochrome sensor. Okay. I mean, I don't care. And then there's a macro sensor. Also, I don't care because I'd rather just crop in from the main sensor, right? So out of the six little dots you see on the back of the phone, 
three of them are borderline useless. And I think they purely do that to make it look more high-end and say they have more sensors, when in reality, you're never going to use those. And beyond that, the sensors they do have are, I would say, are fine. So you have the ultra-wide, which is pretty decent, actually. I, th- I will say that that actually is a pretty high-quality sensor. But the standard camera and sensor and stuff is basically the same as the OnePlus 8, which was fine. It is not as good as something like a Pixel. It's certainly not as good as something like what you're going to get on the iPhone 12. And we're kind of hitting a price point where, yes, I love the 120 Hz, and I love a lot about this phone and the fast charging, but it is a very large device, which is not something I'm personally a big fan of. And the camera is, I would say, maybe a half step below what I would consider to be daily driver material when you look at the other devices in this kind of uh, category. Should we talk about one of the other devices in that category? <laughs> you mean my new daily driver? I can't believe this is the case, but we're talking about the Pixel either. 5, right? I'm straight up. I did not expect this in any way. So I feel like our last episode was like, ah, Pixels, whatever. Oh, they messed up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, no, I've switched over to the Pixel. Uh, Z wow. Flip, I have not touched in three days now. I have been fully on the Pixel train. It, it's There's a lot of small reasons why. There's not a big reason why. I will just tell you right now. There's not like, oh, because it has this or that. It does so many things so well, even though there are a lot of sort of compromises. And we'll talk about some of the stuff that they've cut. And, you know, it's maybe not as high end as it could be. But it doesn't do anything badly. Like, literally, it doesn't do anything badly. It is almost like the iPhone of Android phones now and that it will do everything well. And I think there are a lot of people who will be very happy with the Pixel 5. How does it feel compared to other phones? Because, like, it is made different. Excellent. Like, that actually is one of the things that I think draws me to the Pixel the most. So they're using an aluminum frame. So it's an aluminum unibody design. But then they have this sort of like a resin, like slightly soft touch, slightly plastic feeling uh, design. I'm not entirely sure what it is. It's really not like anything else. It's vaguely similar to like some of the earlier pixels, but it's not. I love the fact that there's no glass on the back of this phone. I never rock a glass back phone without a case, a skin, uh, something on it. I just don't trust it. I don't treat my phones particularly well. Mm. I want to have some kind of protection. With the Pixel, it's aluminum with this sort of soft touch. I will throw it around. I don't care at all. I feel super confident that it is not going to break. It is not going to be, you know, chipped up or whatever. Mind you, I've only had it for, you know, a little over a week now. But I don't have any need to put a case on it, which means that it is already a very small and thin phone. It's very similar in size to something like an iPhone 11 Pro, I would say. So it's, it's a good size, six-inch display. But because I don't have to put a case or anything on it, it feels thinner and it feels a lot closer to something like, even though it's a very weird comparison, something like a Z Flip, right? It doesn't take up a ton of room in my pocket. It's nice and thin. It's easy to use and I don't have to worry about it, right? The same way that with the Z Flip, when it's closed, I don't worry about it. The Pixel, I also don't worry about it. It feels really nice, man. And the bezels are small too, right? Mm. Like There's a lot that I like about the hardware of this phone that you wouldn't see from the spec sheet. But when you touch it, when you feel it, when you interact with it, when you use the very fast fingerprint sensor on the back, there's a lot of stuff that's like, oh, you know what? This is great. I love this. Did the Pixel 4 have a fingerprint sensor? It did not. So they instead entirely relied on face unlock. I understand what they've done it and it's fine. But like it's just a, I think, probably unprecedented thing where a phone has gone up a level but has regressed 
in certain features. So they got rid of face unlock and went back yes. to touch unlock. I mean, you can call that a mm-hmm. regress or not, but like Google tried, uh, Google positioned it that their face unlock was a, an improvement. So based mm-hmm. on what they say, it's a regression. Um, and the image processor is changed. So they they had a neural core, right? That was their, their mm-hmm. machine learning core, which did like uh, immediate processing of photos. And it's now going to having to, you know, it does the processing, but it will do it slowly like the pixels used to do. So you could yep. take a picture, open it, and you'd see a little spinner and then processing is done on the image now both of these things depending on your outlook like they're not that like there's like whatever like i want i put you know you could say i prefer touch i touch sensors or you could say i don't care how long it takes the images to process because i'm very rarely doing something with them immediately and that is perfectly acceptable plus the phone is 200 dollars cheaper than what it's replacing yeah i just think it is merely notable that this has happened right that the pixel 4 to the pixel 5 has seen regressions in two key areas that made the Pixel 4, what Google said, a good phone. Here's the thing. I think every Pixel has had a, if not deal-breaking flaw, a very serious issue. Yes. right. Every single one, right? There's always been, like last year, battery life was atrocious, especially on the standard Pixel 4. And they stupidly chose to go with a telephoto instead of an ultrawide, mm-hmm. right? Those two... Plus the fact that it had fairly large bezels, not massive, but to fit all that sort of face sensor stuff in there, which I did not actually like that much. I much prefer using the fingerprint sensor. There there were a lot of issues with that phone last year, right? And it was expensive. They basically, you can't look at the Pixel 5 and point to a single deal-breaking flaw, right? Hmm. So performance, I think that's probably the number one thing that people were concerned about. Yes, it is using a mid-range processor, the Snapdragon 765G. It's what you will find in the OnePlus Nord. It's what you would find in something like the LG Velvet. It is not the most high-end chip in the world, but it is totally fine. And it still keeps that 90 hertz refresh rate. Now, I will say, if I'm going to throw a little bit of a nitpick here, it's still not that locked 90 frames per second experience. It's hard to really quantify it with like some kind of test or benchmark, but you can tell that it's not always running at 90. And this is the same problem I had with the Pixel 4 last year. They're pretty aggressive on their kind of throttling of that refresh rate. It feels like some apps just straight up run at 60. It doesn't always feel buttery smooth, but I would say 70, 80% of the time, it does feel like I'm running at 90. If you put it side by side with the OnePlus 8T, you can notice the difference for sure. It is not as fast, not only in the processor, but also in that sort of screen. But if you look at it compared to any 60 hertz display, so specifically for me, the Z Flip, it is a faster, more noticeably quick experience, even though technically the processor and the performance aren't as good. I do think the screen is almost worth pushing it to a higher tier compared to that raw performance. Sure, you may wait a very small beat to load a web page or play a game or something, but for my use, and like I was saying earlier with the Surface Laptop Go, it's good enough that I'm completely happy to overlook it, and it has 5G. It's the, you know, we all need 5G in our lives, right? Mm. <laughs> it's just it's interesting, though, right? Because it's like, I understand what you're saying, that there doesn't appear to be a deal breaker on this phone. But mm-hmm. there isn't a... I don't think that there is something which is like, no-brainer, you should buy it. Like, that no. maybe the... Pic, like Because, you know, the thing that the Pixel always had going for it was the camera. And, you know, the situation here is is basically what we'd spoken about before, it seems like, right? Like... Yeah, the yeah. photos are really good, but they're not best in class anymore. No, they, I would say it's up there with the iPhone as far as consistency. Like, yeah. I feel like 
you pretty much always, like, if you just whip this thing out and take a photo, it's pretty much always going to be good, right? If you have, you know, a very specific image of, like, you know, a night mode portrait or something, like, it's going to look better on an S20 Ultra with its larger sensor. Like, there are definitely certain scenarios where it loses out. I still think it is always very solid. And the app is phenomenal, right? The Google camera app is great. They do so much with the software, but this is the same sensor which we have had for years. I will say that with the ultra wide means that it is a very good camera. I'd say it still deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as the iPhones and as the Samsungs of the world. But at $700, I don't have any complaint. It is certainly better than something like the OnePlus 7T. I would say it is at least on par and probably a little bit better than that Galaxy S20 Fan Edition. And it's probably a little bit behind the iPhone, but it's a very good camera, right? Something else it has going for it, we have water resistance. It's not full like IP68, I believe, but it is water resistant. It also does have wireless charging, which is unique. So I think they're actually doing that by cutting a hole in the aluminum chassis. And then they, because they have that coating over it, you can't tell, but you can wirelessly charge with it, which is nice. There are a couple of things that are a little bit weird. So it actually doesn't have stereo speakers. So this is actually not something I had realized watching their event until I actually had the phone. So it has a bottom firing speaker, loud, fine. But instead of having an earpiece, it actually vibrates the glass. So we've seen this on some earlier, like some LG phones, for example. So when you're taking a call, you can put your ear against any part of the screen and it will sound exactly the same, right? Because it is the actual screen itself that is making the noise. But when it comes to, say, watching video, it's quiet, right? Like it, it sort of, you feel the phone vibrating, but it doesn't quite kick off the same kind of volume as something like a real stereo speaker. But I'm coming from a Z Flip with one speaker, so it's an improvement from that. It's just interesting to me that you would consider moving from the Z Flip to this because like the Z Flip has the things that make the Z Flip what it is, and this phone doesn't have those things, right? Like it folding up and stuff. It's an upgrade though in so many ways. I would say performance, it feels better because of the 90 hertz. It has better battery life, so that's something else I haven't talked about. It's a 4,000 milliamp hour battery. I would say I don't really have battery issues with the Z Flip. I'm always able to make it through a full day, but mm-hmm. I'm able to make it through a full day at like 35, 40% on the Pixel, right? Even when you know travel time comes back around, I don't think mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to kill this phone in a single day, right? I will say that the cameras are an improvement over the Z Flip. I will say that it still has 5G. I'm a little annoyed that it is, because I think it has millimeter wave, it's probably another $100 more expensive than it should be. If they had a version of this phone that was $600 instead of $700, I think it would go from being like a, oh, it's a great phone. It's a good default to, you should buy a Pixel 5. I really do think it is $100 away from that point. But they just simply made a lot of great decisions. I was 100% wrong about the Pixel. I will freely admit that. I had low expectations for this thing. I didn't think that it would be something that would be like, oh yeah, you know what, it's a Pixel. Ah, they're doing that wacky stuff. But after using this phone, while it's not perfect, and if you look at the spec list, it is not exciting, the overall package of what you're getting is such a solid level. I think this is the first time in the entire history of the Pixel line that Google has delivered a complete package. And you know what? It's really something special. It's not the flashiest thing. It's not the most exciting phone in the world, but it does literally everything well. And especially in this 2020 world, that's just simply something that very few other phones can really brag about.